Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to the second season of Book Tour. In this episode, I return to Washington, D.C. for an event hosted by Politics and Prose. My guest is my friend and best-selling author, David Baldacci. Thanks for listening. Let's start the show. Well, good evening and, um, and welcome. I'm, uh, I'm Bradley Graham, the co-owner of Politics and Prose, uh, along with my wife, Lisa Muscatine. And um, on behalf of everybody at, uh, at PNP, uh, thank you very much for coming. Let me, let me first uh, extend our thanks to, um, to Sidwell Friends for allowing us to use uh, their, their lovely meeting house. Uh, this place is just seven years old. Uh, and we have found it to be uh, quite a, a, an inspirational setting uh, for a number of our, our author talks. Um, it's a wonderful uh, space that has uh, won awards for its simplicity, its economy of means, uh, and its quiet beauty. Uh, and in keeping with the Quaker spirit, um, let's, let's begin by uh, observing a, a moment of silence. Now, on with the show. Um, what, what a treat to have uh, John Grisham with us uh, this evening. John doesn't tour bookstores uh, uh, very often. Uh, in fact, until earlier this year, uh, he hadn't done a tour in, in about 25 years. Uh, but his last book, Camino Island, uh, centered on a fictional bookseller. Uh, so he, he went around uh, to talk about it at a number of different uh, bookstores, in, including Politics and Prose. And now he's back in town for his new novel, The Rooster Bar, uh, which actually is set uh, here in, in Washington. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the story of, of John's own career, uh, his remarkable success as a writer uh, reinforces that old saying, if at first you don't succeed. Uh, his debut novel, A Time to Kill, published in the late 1980s, uh, drew a, a rather underwhelming reception uh, and resulted in only a single printing of a few thousand copies. Uh, but, uh, but John had been working um, as a small town lawyer on criminal and, and injury cases, uh, and uh, his, um, his initial lackluster start as a novelist uh, didn't dissuade him from trying again. Uh, so he came out a couple of years later with a second novel, The Firm, uh, and that one did end up on the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for, for nearly a year. Um, it sold more than seven million copies and got made into a feature film starring Tom Cruise. Since then, of course, John has gone on to become a, a master of the legal thriller. He's averaged about one novel a year and now has more than 300 million books in print worldwide. Many of his works have reflected his own concerns for social issues and have addressed the legal and moral questions around such serious matters as the death penalty, homelessness, health insurance, and prison conditions. In the Rooster Bar, John turns his attention to the deceptive practices of for-profit universities, schools that dangle the prospect of graduates landing high-paying jobs at prestigious firms, uh, but, th but then end up failing to uh, prepare students adequately. The novel centers on three third-year students who took on a significant debt to attend Foggy Bottom Law School. <laughs> you gotta, got, got, gotta love that name. Uh, 
only to realize belatedly that they've been duped, uh, but then they devise a, a plan to expose the scam. Critics have used such terms as smart, buoyant, and mischievous to describe the book, uh, which is written with such uh, energy that you get a sense, as a New York Times reviewer said, that John was feeling real pleasure, not just an obligation, in composing uh, the novel. Now, as a special added attraction this evening, John will be in conversation with another best-selling novelist, David Baldacci, who uh, is a sort of um, local success story. Uh, if you count Virginia as part of the greater Washington area, and I think after last night we'd like to count Virginia. Um, for, for, Virginia is where David grew up and went to college and law school uh, before coming to D.C. to practice law for about nine years. Uh, and then uh, hit it big a couple of decades ago with his first novel, Absolute Power. His latest book, Endgame, uh, due out next week, will be, I think, his 34th uh, novel for adults, and he's also done six novels for younger readers. In fact, if you, if you take David and John together, they account for something like nearly a billion, uh, half, a, half a billion books worldwide, and, uh, and that's real purchasing power. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming John Grisham and David Baldacci. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. I'm delighted to be here uh, back again in D.C. at Politics and Prose and at Sidwell Friends. I have been here before uh, at this school on this campus. In the year 2000, my son played football for a school called St. Anne's Belfield in Charlottesville, and we played here at Sidwell, and um, the day didn't go too well for us. The year before, Sidwell had scrimmaged us in Charlottesville, and Vice President Al Gore showed up because his son was playing for Sidwell, and my job back then was to, to paint the football field, to stripe it. That's what I was doing for a living back then in 1999. And, and that's, that was my main job. I was very serious about it. Uh, we had beautiful logos and, and checkerboard end zones and stuff, but, because I had plenty of time to paint the football field. And we were painting the field for a scrimmage, no less, when the Secret Service showed up uh, and started asking questions. And I didn't have a lot of answers because it was my football field. And so we had words and I realized what they were doing and they said, the vice president is coming tomorrow and we have to scope out the place and make it, make it secure. And at that point I said, sure, you know, we'll help anyway, I, we'll cooperate. And the following year we came here to play Sidwell in my son's senior year and Al Gore's son's senior year and um, had a really cool time because we played the game and then Al and Tipper invited us and our kids to, to run by their house, which was, uh, what, the Naval Observatory? Okay. That's where they were living then. Um, to have cheeseburgers by the pool after the game with the vice president in the year 2000. And I, he was up for, you know, he was running for the presidency at that point. He was way ahead in the polls, and, uh, and he was feeling pretty good. Um, so we had a good time with the kids, and it was a great day. And... Uh, election did not turn out uh, the way we all thought it might. And so anyway, that's my connection, as tenuous as it is, to Sidwell Friends. Um, I'm in D.C. all the time because we only live a couple of hours away, and 
we have a lot of friends here, a lot of interests here. And uh, so when I decided to tour back in the spring with uh, the spring book, uh, it was easy to come to politics and prose. I've actually put Kramer books in a couple of my novels, including Rooster Bar, because the characters in that story couldn't walk all the way to politics and prose, <laughs> but they could walk to Kramer books at DuPont Circle. And so, you know, I know the area pretty well. I love Georgetown and I'm here all the time. And so um, what, what I'm doing with this tour is um, visiting bookstores for the first time or second time. It's been a lot of fun seeing these great independent stores over the, across the country to, to stop by to uh, say thanks because book selling is a contact sport these days and the independents are on the front lines and have been for a long time trying to sell our books and it's not easy. But also to, uh, to meet some of the buyers, some of the fans, some of you guys who've made it happen for us and then to uh, invite writers to come have a conversation that we're going to record and drop as a podcast uh, at some point. And um, most of the writers I haven't met before. Tonight, I'm lucky to have somebody I've met several times before, known for 20 years. Um, David passed through Charlottesville in 1996 with absolute power at the bookstore there. And I stopped by to say hello. And we sat and talked for a long time about... Um, writing, publishing, and legal thrillers. And I told David that um, the most important thing to have a long, successful career in popular fiction is to publish a book every year. And boy, did he take my advice. Uh, <laughs> have you done 40 now? Are you on 40, 39 or 40? Wait, how many, 39? With the kid's book, it's 40. Really? Yeah, you really need to get going. You're, you know, Rooster Bar is 39. I didn't know you had 40. Well, yeah. I just, and, I just finished the 41st yesterday. So. Wow. Um, it's like an episode of Survivor, right? I'm just... You know, about 10 years ago, I was on one of the uh, early morning talk shows, CBS or something, and I made the statement, I said, uh, I think Gail King said, you're doing a book or two every year because I started doing the kids' books. And I said, yeah, um, this is book number 32, but Stephen King has 52, and I'm trying to catch him. And Stephen heard that, it pissed him off, now he's written 75, you can't, you know, you can't. So be careful and don't, you know, don't, don't throw down challenges like that because... Uh, but you've got 40 since 1996. That's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was um, probably about 10 years ago. I, I did something really stupid for a long time. I tried to write screenplays uh, and tried to sell them to Hollywood. Um, and I got over that disorder. <laughs> I got on meds and uh, things turned out better. So once I stopped doing that, I got onto a two book a year schedule. It wasn't, it was sort of happenstance. I just finished a book early and then I had time to write another one. And then two in a year and then it's like, okay, I can do this pace and have done it for the last decade, I guess. And my wife isn't crazy about that schedule, but you know, I like, I like to write. So if I'm not writing, I'm just, I'm not happy. So as soon as I finish one, I like to dive into the next one. I've done two this year, uh, two big books. 
Uh, I've, I've done six of the kids' books, and those are smaller, easier, and you don't, you don't tour, or you don't, there aren't, there aren't as many requests for interviews, and, you know, it's a kid audience, so it's not, that, it's not as grueling as it is for the adults. Uh, that's okay. Uh, I'm not sure two adult books per year is something I'm going to try again. But you've been doing that for some time, right? Yeah, I have. I mean, it's just a schedule I've gotten into, and it's just, a, you know, how I like to spend my days. Um, I would like to know if Foggy Bottom Law School is based on something like maybe a real estate school in New York that um, <laughs> maybe some people got taken advantage of. You can talk about that later. Yeah, let's, let's put that off for later. Um... <laughs> It's not a real place. There is a great law school, as you all know, at Foggy Bottom. But it's a, but it's a, it's a, it's a GW. It's a great school. Um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't avoid using that name, the Foggy Bottom Law it's School. Great, great name. It's a low-end, third-tier, third for-profit law school in Washington, D.C. I've set three books in D.C. The first one was Street Lawyer in 1997 or 98, and I spent a lot of time here. Um, going to homeless shelters and, and hanging out with lawyers who do that kind of work. I did uh, The King of Torts here in about 2000. I mean, I love D.C. I love the city. I, we're only two hours away, so it's really easy to set books here. But let's back up for a second and talk about Hollywood, because you're the first um, guy I think I've had on, on my show. <laughs> my little podcast show. Um, who's had uh, some success with Hollywood because you actually tried to write screen you did write screenplays yeah I did what, yeah, I did. what caught, why'd you do that well I had written short stories for a long time and I couldn't make any money doing that so I thought I'd try screenplays um, and it was a different challenge I mean this is a writing that's going to end up on a wall with sound and dialogue that people can hear and, and watch so in it, you're taking a story, you have 110, 120 very tightly scripted pages. And actually writing screenplays all those years, I think, helped me as a novelist because it made me a lot more succinct and to the point, building a scene and getting through it, not being overly wordy. Because in a screenplay, you know, when you're spending a million bucks a page filming it, you can't get too wordy. You've got to hit your marks. And every scene has to have, you know, multiple purposes. So I thought it would be a good challenge. You know, and you've got to get out of your comfort zone as a writer. So you were doing the screenplays first, without too much success. Yeah. As you as you're practicing law. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm glad to hear you say that. But the way you describe screenplays, because you and I write about very different things, but we, I think, as lawyers, we both learned a long time ago that lawyers use far too many words in in letters, in pleadings, in briefs, or whatever. They're very very wordy. And both of us, I think, at some point said, that's not the way you're supposed to write. So you, you, you became very efficient with words. I became very efficient with words. Both of our, our novels, they're all, they're all different lengths, but they're pretty much the same length. Yeah. We don't get carried away with 500-page novels or 1,000-page doorstops like, you know, <laughs> people that I'm not going to call any names, okay? Right. We're not going to go together. Yeah, I do. So, so, what, so what, why did you give up screenwriting and, and begin, begin writing novels? Well, you know, I, absolute power was a big change for me. It was the first thing really I'd sold, and it allowed me to write full time. And I still write, continue to write screenplays after that because I really wanted to get something done. 
Um, and I had a book I'd written years ago called Wish You Well that was optioned for film, and there was a screenplay writer assigned to it, and um, they weren't going to set it in Virginia. They were going to film it probably in Canada, even though it's very specific to, this, to the state of Virginia. And at the end of the day, I kind of pulled it out of that process and decided, you know, if I will write the screenplay one day. And I ended up writing that screenplay about four or five years ago, and the movie was made. But Hollywood is, you know, I like, you and I are novelists. We're sort of king of the hill. We write what we want to write about, and people can edit it and comment, but, you know, we have the last sort of decision on that. As a filmmaker, you're a collaboration. You have 100,000 cooks in the kitchen. Everybody has an opinion about something. Writers are like you know, on the bottom of a gnat's stomach. That's the sort of the priority they have in Hollywood. Um, so it's not all that much fun. I like being a novelist a lot more. Well, I got to tell you, last week I was in Lexington, Kentucky, just like this with Sue Grafton. And the first time I'd met her. And, uh, I mean, you talk about inspirational. We, Hollywood came up, and she said, look, I spent years out there writing screenplays. I don't like those people. <laughs> I don't like the system. I don't like movies, it's a waste of time. I don't talk to Hollywood. And, and she's never let anyone adapt any of her Kinsey Milhone novels. And now she's down to number, so she's down to Z. That's right. Yeah, so I asked her what was Z gonna be and she, she had no clue. But we had some suggestions and she didn't like any of them. Anyway, <laughs> but she, she said, I, I, I don't waste my time talking to Hollywood. And, you know, I've thought about that. That was last when I thought about that for a week now. And if you just stop and think of the time that we, I say we waste, but we probably waste because when Hollywood calls, we, you know, we all get kind of seduced by the glamour. And uh, we spend a lot of time talking to people who are not going to make a movie or reading a screenplay, a screenplay that's really dreadful. And I'm thinking, you know, why am, I, why am I doing this? I don't have a single movie in the works right now. I, mean, I have not had a movie in 15 years uh, because Hollywood does not want to make, um, you know, smart adult dramas. That's not, that's not what they make. They make action films. And all the talent's gone to television. So now there are 450 TV series in development. And so that, that'll oversaturate. And, and I'm... I'm thinking, well, why, why do I even care about this? We have the best job in the world. We get to write the books. And there's not a single thing that you and I could do with our latest novels. Rooster Bar came out two weeks ago. Your new novel comes out next week. <clears throat> if we gave the film rights away, which we're not going to do, but, you know, not for free. Uh, but if we did, and if, if we wrote the screenplay for free, you gave the film rights and the screenplay that's not going to help that movie get made at all. It's, it's very frustrating. And so I guess, you know, I'm going to become like Sue Grafton. You know, just screw them. I don't know. Deal. Anyway, so do you have any movies in development? I have um, one coming out a Christmas uh, weekend. It's a Hallmark film uh, based on one of my novels, The Christmas Train. Um, I was John and I were talking earlier. Hallmark ratings are through the roof. They're up like 80%. Uh, from January of this year. Um, yeah, you, you wanna, can laugh. You want to dissect that for us? <laughs> well, I think people want, you know, they want happy endings. They want a feel-good film, particularly for the holidays. And they've turned to Hallmark for that. And Hallmark was great. I mean, I, there was probably the, the least sort of crazy atmosphere around film I've ever had. They bought the film rights probably four months ago. 
they did the pre-production. They filmed the entire book. Very faithful to the book, by the way. In, in four weeks, the film was done. They have, you know, feature film caliber actors in the film, which was terrific and unusual for Hallmark. Their post-production was super, and they hit all their marks. And I've seen the network cut of the film, and it's great. The production values are super. It was like, this doesn't happen. You know, and there was no drama at all. And you think Hallmark would have a lot of drama because that's <laughs> what they do. Um, so it was great. And like John, I've got a couple of TV series in development too, but there's no guarantee they're going to make it to the, to the screen. And most of the best stuff these days are happening on television. But as John also said, now everybody's got, you know, all these television series in development and there's just not enough bandwidth out there. So I've, I've, already, I've told my film agents now, don't call me until they've green-lighted a project, which means it, act, it will get made. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear that somebody's excited. I don't want to hear that somebody, you know, has written a great script. I don't want to hear that they've attached somebody who's really hot, you know, for the next week or so in Hollywood. I don't want to hear that anymore. Just call me when it's green-lighted and they're actually going to start making the film. Then you can tell me. And then tell me when it's going to premiere and I'll come. So you practiced law for nine years, yeah. as did I. And were you writing screenplays or writing novels by then? All, all through, I was writing short stories, screenplays, and novels um, while I was practicing law. I would go home in the middle. I, I, I know that you would pick a, you know, a period even early in the morning. I wrote late at night when I'd get home after work. And you may hate lawyers, but lawyers, you know, all we have to sell are one-hour increments of our life. So we do work long hours. So I would get home at night and, you know, back then I only had one kid and I would, you know, have dinner with my family and they would go to bed and I'd go down to my little cubby and write until three in the morning. Uh, and that was the only outlet I had to write about things I wanted to write about. You know, during the day I had to write about things people were paying me to write about. So that was my outlet. And I, don't, I think if I didn't have that, because trial, you know, trial work is tough and it's like, you know, gladiators in suits. And in the South it's gladiators in seersucker suits. So... <laughs> But it was, uh, it was an outlet for me that I think could have sort of kept my sanity. Because I, w- I was a D.C. lawyer. So I would go to all these states, and I was like Darth Vader, the bad guy coming from out of town. Nobody knew who I was. They just assumed I was evil because I was from Washington, D.C. And I had to have local counsel admit me into the, into the court so I could try a case there. And, you know, it was exhilarating. It was challenging. And I learned a lot. Uh, a lot that helped me actually in publishing. My my first my first publisher when I sold my first book, he said, "You know, you're the only lawyer, the only author I have that actually reads and understands the publishing contracts." And he said, "I really hate that." I said, "Yeah," because <laughs> let me tell you, publishing contracts are so one-sided. I I renegotiated all of them. I don't even do. You know, I'm into, I'm, and John is too, into partnerships with publishers. You know, forget royalties. You know, royalties suck. And, you know, the publishers get almost all of it. My litmus test has always been that no publisher should make more money off of a book than the person who created that book. You guys can applaud if you want to. We, we all agree. So as a young lawyer, you, you spent a lot of time in the courtroom. It was a big firm? A small firm started out. Can you still hear me? No. You hear me? Thank you. That's, How about now? Yeah, good. Yeah, I was small firm, medium firm, and then big firm. Um, so I sort of saw all three types of practice levels. I like the small firm the best. And so did you uh, wake up one day with a magical phone call from New York? You got a big, fat contract, 
and you could quit practicing law and you walked out of the office? Well, I, I got the phone call um, and my agent, who I'd only been my agent for a couple of weeks, he called and said, hey, you know, if I sold this book, Absolute Power for a Lot of Money, would you quit practicing law? And I said, yeah, that's kind of my dream. I, that's what I want to do. And then he said, well, I sold the book. And I said, great, you know, how much is it going to cost me? <laughs> And uh, he said, no, it, it sold for a lot of money. And I hung up, and I was like, that's great. I finally get an agent, and he turns out to be, you know, insane. Because that does, stuff doesn't happen. And then I got a call from, you know, Time Warner, which was the publisher and, you know, the CEO of Time Warner Publishing, wanted to talk to me. And I was like, this is, this is like the greatest punk session ever. I mean, I can't believe this is happening. The, this, the odd thing for me was that nobody I'd ever worked with and very few people that I knew knew that I'd been writing for 15 years. So nobody in my law firm knew I was even writing. They didn't even know I'd even written a book or sent it out to be published. Nobody knew. So I had to, I had to keep working. So I had a luncheon to go to that same day that I'd gotten a call that sort of changed my life. And it was a luncheon about a guy pontificating on insurance regulations. <laughs> You know, and I was in the meeting, and all I wanted to do was jump on the table and do the electric slide all the way down <laughs> the table, but I couldn't. But in my mind, I did. Um, so, and, and I went to New York, and the publisher threw a party for me, and I was going to come back to D.C. and tell everybody, because I just joined this firm like six months before. They had, I was like, I went from an attorney at a small firm to an attorney at a huge firm, and I was like attorney 587. They had no idea who I even was. So I called my uh, secretary from New York and said, you know, told her I'll be back the next day. And uh, then I found out that the Wall Street Journal had written a front page article about this deal because it was a pretty big publishing deal for a first time novelist, far more money than, you know, I ever envisioned. And so she goes, oh, my God, the whole firm is shut down. They're all out there reading this article and they're wondering who the hell is attorney 587? <laughs> So I got back to the law firm, and it was kind of a strange day. Uh, so it didn't take you long to quit, right? Well, I stayed on for a, almost a year. A year. Yeah. Can you believe Scott Turow still goes to the office? Oh, I know. Uh, he, and he, he practices, you yeah. know. Oh, no, the guy's crazy. I saw him at the National Book Festival. And, you know, he was like, yeah, I, I, I don't have the, I don't have the, um, I have a far more luxurious publishing schedule than you. And I said, yes, yeah, Scott, but you work pretty much full-time as a lawyer, too. So, you know, you're no slacker. Do you recall in 1987 when Presumed Innocent was published? I do. Well, what's your recollection? I remember reading the book. I was living in a townhouse in Alexandria, Virginia. I remember I'd gotten the book, had that really cool cover, and sitting down on a chair, and I don't think I ever got up out of the chair. You know, it was... Not only was it a great character study, which Scott does really well, it was one of the best police procedurals I'd ever read in my life. And talk about, we were talking about this earlier, where we could read a book written by a lawyer, we could tell within 10 pages whether a person ever practiced law or not. You could tell within two pages, you know, that Scott Turow knew exactly what he was writing about. And when, and, and when the book came out, it was an instant, it was his first novel. He had one previous book about called 1L about going to law school, that I actually read in law school. And then he published Presumed Innocent, and um, it was a big bestseller. And for you know, several months that summer, he was the man. He got all the attention, all the publicity. I was trying to finish A Time to Kill and having, you know, struggling. And I, I remember thinking, you know, 
that's never going to happen to me. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you make that happen? I read the book and was blown away by the book. And I was ha very happy for Scott. Uh, and I was also pretty damn envious, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't really, um, get a time to kill finished. And I finally did a few months later, I guess, and then went through a whole process of y'all rejection and all this stuff. And, uh, but I've told Scott and our buddies, uh, we've spent a lot of time together. And I've told Scott that that was a very important moment in my life was when Presumed Innocent came out because it really inspired me. It showed me how that it, it could be done if, if you had, if I had the, you know, wherewithal to do it, the perseverance and whatever, but it was, it meant a lot to me. And I've always tried to remember that when in the, in the context of how, um, other writers may view us, you know, how younger writers may look at us and say, you know, I've met that guy, I know that woman, I, she's a best-selling author. It can happen. It, it's possible it can happen. So um, I, try, I try to keep that in mind. But my first novel, my contract was for $25,000. I mean, unlike yours, I really couldn't just retire uh, and go write book. <laughs> I had to keep practicing law. And A Time to Kill came out in 89, and uh, it flopped. I mean, they printed, you know, 5,000 copies, and we couldn't give the book away. And I'd worked on it for three years and gone through the, the publishing rejection scenario. And, and I, I said, okay, I'm going to do it one more time. I, I didn't, when you were a kid, you dreamed of writing, okay? I didn't. I never thought about writing. When you were in high school and college, you were always writing, thinking about writing. It came later in in life for me, and I, I just—it it wasn't a lifelong dream, and it was taking way too much time to get the book written, and I, so I thought I had an idea for the second book that might be more uh, commercial, <laughs> more popular, more accessible, and I got a couple of lucky breaks and got, got the book published. Have you had a big lucky break that comes to mind? <clears throat> yeah, I—I I think. Um all the stars sort of have to be in alignment too. I mean, I, I could have said absolute power of the manuscript up to, you know, the wrong people or they were having a bad day or they had just gotten a book that was in the same genre that what they thought was even better. Uh, that can happen. I think we both understand the fragility of, you know, our starts and it could have gone a different way. And look, The Time to Kill was a brilliant book and it, I, it shows the talent that you have that you can write a book that has that kind of depth and the quality of the prose and also write a blockbuster commercial fiction like The Firm. That's really difficult to do, John, and I, I've always felt that way about you. You were multi-talented. But it, it, it's a fragile industry and, and I look around and I see there are a lot of great writers out there who nobody will ever read a page of what they've written because they weren't in the right place at the right time, didn't have the right support, the right mentor. And people say, gee, you know, how can you be humble after all these years? And I say, I'm humble because I know that that for a fact, there could easily be somebody else that have gotten the breaks that I've gotten. And I could be one of the people out there who's a really good writer and no one will ever read. Um, and I, that could be my, that could be stuck over my desk. That thought, I've never lost that thought. Uh, and, um, I, that's, I think, one of the reasons we both really try to, you know, inspire other writers. And um, I like going out and doing these events because you always have writers come up to you afterwards and ask you about things, give advice. I never did that when I was out there looking in. I never even went to a book signing before, ever. Um, but these days, you know, I enjoy that back and forth, and it's nice to feel like you're inspiring people. Although I do, I can't... I can't sort of get my hand around where some guy comes up, he's in his 30s, you know, and he said, oh my God, Mr. Baldacci, I've been reading you since I was in elementary school, you know, and um, 
I was like, okay, I'm just going to go back here and shoot myself. Can you see uh, slowing down? You're only 57. I know. Yes. I'm 62. We were still fairly young. We are. Gonna... No, I mean, I, I have no plans to slow down. No, and, and it's, it's not, for me, it's not slowing down because it would, it would be taking away something. I, I tell people I don't see writing as my profession, a job a hobby, or even a passion. At this point in my career, I can't separate that out from who I am. So if I stopped writing, I have other interests, but if I stopped writing, I'm not sure I'd be the same person. I just, every day is a day for me to tell another story. And that's really what gets me up during the day. And it's hard. There are a lot of frustrating days where you wish you did something else for a living. But, you know, when you nail a sentence or a story is done and you look back at it and you thought that is as good as I possibly could tell that story, that's a great feeling. And, um, you know, for, for years as a lawyer, um, you know, I was paid to write fiction <laughs> for my clients. Um, <laughs> and now I get to do it for real. So what's your, uh, what's your daily schedule when you're writing? And when I'm in town, I have an office outside the house. My wife many years ago said, you need to get out of the house. You know, when the kids were little and we would have journalists or photographers, you know, people come by and... She didn't like that. We had no buffer, no privacy. So yeah, I have an office outside the house. And so I go there every day when I'm in town. Um, but, and I like, you know, familiar surroundings when I'm writing, but there's the only perfect place to write does not involve a physical space. It involves this space up here. So I write everywhere. I write on the road. I write on trains, planes, and automobiles. Um, it never gets turned off. People ask me, you know, where do you get your ideas from? And I say, I wake up in the morning, I walk out the door. You know, that's where the ideas come from. You never know where an idea is going to come from. We could both be sitting here tonight looking around, and we see Sidwell friends, and we see a Secret Service agent outside waiting because Sasha Obama is still here, um, and you get an idea. You know, it's just, it's really a mindset. It's how you look at the world. You know, writers have a different prism. We look at the world through a different sort of scope. So, so we, we differ. Uh, I, have, I have one place to write. One, I, you know, I don't try to write anywhere else. Uh, one, one desk, one space, one computer, one, you know, one time of the day, early morning. Um, I never think about writing when I'm traveling on the road. I have, I have an office in downtown Charlotte, so I go in every day to, you know, have lunch. Lunch is very important. I really enjoy, <laughs> enjoy the lunch scene, okay? And, um, but, you know, Scott Turow still writes on the train, you know, you, which is fine, you, but you've you got to find... Uh, we did Harlan Coben back in uh, June in New Jersey, and the first time I met Harlan, yeah. I didn't know he was half crazy, but he's half crazy. He's really funny. But he writes in the back of cabs. He, he takes a cab into New York City. He'll go to a coffee shop, and he'll write there, and he's always looking for a different place to write. That's, you know, that's great, whatever works. Right. Uh, yeah. But for me, it's I'm, you know, pretty regimented in the, in, the, in the way I do. No, every, every writer's different. What's a good day for you as far as word count? A thousand words? I, you know... I don't count words. I just, I write. But your computer does. Yeah. Yeah. It's down I, that lower left hand corner. Know. You can always see how many I've got words. A, you I got a piece of tape over see, that, uh, so I, I won't know. I write until the tank is empty, you know, each day. I write until I have nothing else to write, and then I, whether it's two hours, one hour, or ten hours, and then I get up and walk away. Is, does your wife, is she around? Does she, does no, she bother you? No. She almost never comes to the office. No, okay. no. I'm just, but my office is just in a separate building, just beyond beyond the house, and 
years ago when the kids were small, Renee was pretty good about keeping the kids away from the office, you know, and she would not uh, come over there and interrupt, you know. And for the first few hours of the morning from 7 to 10, it, they were, those hours were just golden. I was there by myself. It was a dark room with no phone, no fax, no Internet, same cup of coffee, same quilt, same, you know, hunched down like a hermit. And, uh, but that's, to me, that's, and, and that's still a good day for me. Um, but after 27 years of, you know, being around the house, uh, she's really tired of me. She, I mean, she said, why don't you go on a book tour? You know, why don't you go do, uh, why don't you get, get out of the house and go do something? And so that's one reason we're sitting here tonight, David, is because my wife is... <laughs> My wife said, go, go book tour and, and give, give me a break. So that's why I'm here. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I mean, it's just... How yeah. much do you tour? I've toured pretty much... I have a, I've toured for every book, you know. And um, so it's early on, I went everywhere. You know, it was like, it was, you know, a lady from Nebraska called up and said, I've got three people in a book club. Would you come? And I said, yep, what are you having for dinner? I'll be there. So everywhere, overseas, and um, for about 10 years, you know, and I, every, it was huge schedules, you know, too many cities, too many countries. I did indeed wake up one day. I had no idea what country I was in. I was in Sweden, <laughs> Stockholm. Um, and probably about 10 years ago or so, my kids were getting at the age or, you know, early teens and all that, and I really backed it back because I like, I don't want to miss, you know, uh, any more of this time. Do you do you uh, do you go to bookstores and sign books, autograph books in those countries, or you, is it just interviews and PR? It's both. Okay. You know, it depends on it depends on the country, but for the most part, uh, most of the places I go to overseas, I'll do book signings as well. I can't read the book, you know, but I can sign my name. So, how many languages do you have now? About fifty. That's about what I've got. Yeah, and they and they they uh, they send you your foreign publishers send you like ten copies of every book uh, in Finnish and Korean and uh, Hindu. And it's cool to see them all on the shelf, you know, but, but 10 is more than you really need. You, you only need a couple of them. And I've tried to give them away. I've, I've worked for you. I've labored for years to give them to our local library. Well, the people who are from, from other countries who are here, they want to speak English, okay? They, yeah. they don't want to read their native tongues. So they don't, they don't want the books. So I've got thousands of... Well, 40 books times 50 languages and yeah. times 10 yeah, that's a lot. is a lot of books you know, laying around the office that nobody really has any need for. And well, we started giving them to the, uh, years ago, we started giving them to the FBI's foreign language immersion program for agents going overseas. Hang on, let me, let me write <laughs> <laughs> Never thought about that. <laughs> you got a contact? I'll, get, I got, I'll, I'll email you. I've got to get rid of these books, okay? I've yeah. got to get rid of these books. His name is Jim Comey. You may remember him. From... Oh, well, damn. That's right. He's got a book next year. He's I got know, a big I book next year. I can't wait to read it. He's got a big, fat advance that's coming next year. What are you working on now? Uh, literally yesterday, I finished the book for the uh, next spring. I have a series with this guy, Amos Decker. He's the memory man. Um, so he'll be back in, next year in a book uh, called The Fallen. Uh, How do you keep six series going? Yeah, it's, uh, you know. Yeah. Bad. I have one series, okay? It's Theodore Boone, Kid Lawyer. I know, I know. I've had six books, yeah. a 13-year-old kid who thinks he's a lawyer, okay? So when I go back to write another one, 
I have to go back and read the first six to remember. <laughs> I can't remember what I wrote in the first six books. I mean, you can't, my, my brain's not that big. I mean, I can't, but how do you keep, you have all these, you got Amos Decker, you've got the kids series, you've got all the other series going. Yeah, I know. S- uh, S- Smith and Maxwell and yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's, 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 I like it just because it gets me out of my comfort zone and I have to challenge myself to write a different character. But I like the arcs. I mean, I, I like taking different characters and different uh, directions and saying, but I, I'm like you. I, I go back and I'm writing the sixth or seventh book in a series just for continuity. You know, I've got to go back and, you know, read some of the earlier books to make sure that I've gotten things consistent and all that. You know, when you're making a film, they have a person who does that. They're called the scripty and they're the continuity expert and they do that. But when you write novels, it's kind of false to you. I mean, I'm getting these nasty letters from 12 year old kids who uh, find mistakes in my Theodore Boone series. It's like, gotcha. You know, I got you on page so and so. You said this in book four, and it's different from book three or book two or whatever. I'm, I'm almost intimidated. I'm, I'm almost afraid to write these things now. Well, I, I tell you, with, with absolute power, when that first came out, you didn't get emails. You got real letters back then, and most of them were complimentary, the book. Some people had issues with it, but most people liked it. And, but I got a letter from a lady, and the book came out in 1996, January. Keep that date in mind. It was written like three years before. So in 1999, I got a letter from a woman who was like pissed off beyond belief with me. And she said, I can't believe that you took a national scandal and wrote about it and made it into a bestseller. And I kept reading the letter and because absolute power dealt with a president who had an affair, I realized she thought that I had taken the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal and written about it you know, and made a bunch of money off of it. So I thought, oh, well, I can fix this. So I wrote her back, very nice letter, and I said, well, if you look at the copyright date on Absolute Power, January 1996, two and a half years before anybody in the whole world knew who Monica Lewinsky was, so there you go. And I thought that would have been the end of it. Like three days later, I got a letter back from this woman. It was one sentence, very short, and all it said was, that proves nothing. And I hope you didn't respond to that letter. I did not respond to that letter. That was kind of a lost cause at that point. All right, we're out of time. Thank you all. Thanks, David. Thanks to Politics and Prose. Thank you folks for coming. Thanks to my guest, David Baldacci. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe and listen to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. We'll see you down the road with Book Tour.